The Laura Murphy Show, episode 54. Welcome to The Laura Murphy Show, the podcast that analyzes financial markets from the perspective of Austrian economics and Nelson Nash's infinite banking concept. Listen and learn as your hosts, Robert Murphy and Carlos Lara, explain how you can be part of building the 10%. Attention, Lara Murphy Show listeners. If you want to see Carlos Lara, David Stearns, and myself put on a seminar for the general public, which is based on the material in our new book, The Case for IBC, and you're in the Chicago area, then you're going to want to pay attention. On Saturday, May 19th, 2018, we'll be giving such a seminar. For more details, go to ibcseminar.com. Hope to see you there. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Laura Murphy Show. I am one of your hosts, Robert Murphy. With me, as usual, is Carlos. Carlos, how are things up in Nashville? They're very good, Bob. You doing okay? Yes, I am. It was nice to see you. Uh, For those of you who were able to get out there, Carlos and I were in Nashville. I mean, Carlos is always there. I was visiting for an event that we did for the Mises Institute. Jeff Deist was there. Uh, It was great. Nelson Nash drove up with his wife, Mary, and it it was a good time. We gave a talk about our views on the state of the economy and it was not pretty, put it that way. <laughs> you know, it was a great crowd. I, I was even surprised by the size of the crowd. And uh, But it's interesting, you know, we weren't able to discuss solutions very much, but we sure defined the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, that, and that's what we're, we're here to, to try to do in, in this episode as we continue to move through the case for IBC. So this is what we're on now here for those keeping score at home is this is part two of our treatment of chapter five in the book, The Case for IBC. So again, if you haven't gotten it yet, I really don't know what's wrong with you. You need to reconsider the priorities in your life. You got to go to thecaseforibc.com to go ahead and get a copy of our new book that we wrote with Nelson Nash. And so here in chapter five, what we've been doing is going through typical objections or confusions about IBCs. So at this point in the book, we've already laid the, the... groundwork and we've explained how you can use these specially designed uh, whole life policies in order to serve as a, as a cash flow management system, if you will. It's particularly suitable for business owners, but also just for everyday households. And so in this chapter, we sort of use hey, economic Bob, I don't theory. Mean to, I don't mean to interrupt, but yeah. uh, don't we want to let the audience know as well that we're going to be in Chicago in the month of May? We, we in fact, do want to let them know that. That's right. So- we're going to be in Chicago giving a seminar for the general public. The Nelson Nash Institute is putting this on. So that's going to be Saturday, May 19th. We're in 2018. Uh, Carlos, David Stearns, and I are going to be presenting in the Chicago area. If you want to get more details on that, so this is a seminar for the general public where we explain IBC from scratch and we give you know the explanation of the big macroeconomic picture and how IBC fits into that. And so you go to ibcseminar.com to get all the details on that. All right, good. Thanks for reminding me of that, Carlos. So back to chapter five, what we're doing here is fielding some typical objections that people bring up or concerns they have that, you know, geez, this sounds too good to be true. What about this, this, and this? And so we go through that 
sort of using economic analysis. So perhaps explaining how either whole life or IBC in particular works uh, from the b- background of just standard economics. In last episode, in episode 53, we handled some of the objections. In this episode, we're going to field some more. We're not covering everything that's in the chapter, but we're just going to hit some of the points. So why don't we start out with a particularly obvious question when, you know, given the views, and by the way, before when I said it wasn't pretty when we were in Nashville, I didn't mean it was a bad event. What I meant was the message that Jeff Deist, Carlos, and I were <laughs> were giving to the people was not rosy. That's what I meant. It was a very pleasant event. Uh, so given that, given that we're so uh, bearish, pessimistic on the state of the economy that we think the Federal Reserve has blown up an asset bubble and that a crash is coming, especially now as the Fed's tightening, People naturally ask, well, well, gee, you're, you're telling me to go ahead and flow a bunch of my cash through these uh, dividend paying whole life insurance policies. Why, why would I do that? I mean, isn't if, if all these big companies are in trouble and I don't want to have my money in Wall Street, isn't the life insurance sector vulnerable also? What, what if the life insurance companies go down? And you know, Bob, that that question uh, is—it's a good question that the public brings up all the time. Mm-hmm. It's a great question, and don't you remember that that was probably one of the very first questions even you and I had to tackle when we first began ra- writing the book, how privatized banking really works, and we were going around to insurance companies, you know, try to understand how they worked and everything. But this was at the heart of what we were thinking about too. Yeah, yeah, definitely was just to to make sure we were comfortable with it and, and we understood, yeah, which is what their portfolios were like and so on. So exactly right. So, and what I mean by that, Bob, is that mm-hmm. that's what took us into the 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 deep study that we did of what happened during the Great Depression. You know, where we saw a lot of banks go down, but the insurance industry, you know, as a whole, you know, stayed firm. So that that was probably one of the very first examples of history that we were able to go into and discover that the way the life insurance companies are set up is completely different than the way commercial banks are set up. So it, it ties into this 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 question that comes up, well, what happens if the economy crashes? And of course, when an economy starts to crash like this, we see that evidence happening primarily in commercial banks and then other institutions similar to it. Yeah. So along those lines, we, we I'm just reading from the table we have here in the, in the book, The Case for IBC. One way to start addressing this question is just to say, okay, well, you can look and see what are the actual assets that the major life insurance companies hold. So drawing on the um, ACLI 2016 fact book, and this was the latest data that we had available at the time of writing, you know, they, they'll go ahead and give you the distribution of U.S. life insurer assets in what's called the general account. So let me mention, just for those of you who are going to go do research on your own on this stuff, just be careful. Um, there's there's this distinction in the way they report the assets of life insurers, that there's what's called the general account versus the separate account. And the general account, I'm speaking loosely here, are the assets that back up the pure death benefit coverage, if you will. Whereas the separate accounts, those are the assets that are there to fund the performance of hybrid life insurance policies that are in some way tied to like the stock market, for example. All right. So if you you buy variable universal life and that, you know, it's a life insurance policy, but if the stock market goes way up, there's some 
you know, some element that that kicks into your policy and the cash values you have available. There's equity index, universal life, there's stuff like that. So those ones, the life insurance company in order to somehow track at least partially the performance of the stock market, they they have to be exposed to it, right? To be able to pass that along to you as the policyholder. So you don't, for the purposes of IBC, you know, that's not the kind of thing we're talking about. We're talking about dividend paying whole life policies that are not at all tied to the stock market. And so if you want to say, you know, is this policy safe? Suppose I think the stock market's poised to crash. So that's why, you know, gee, I haven't been funding my 401k as heavily and I've been doing this thing over here it would be misleading. You don't want to look at what the life insurance company's separate accounts are because that's, that's not relevant and they're segregated too. So it's not, um, you know, your, your, your policy would be fine. So long as the general account, you know, that's the thing you want to look at to see what's the stability of their portfolio. That's quote backing up the whole life policies. If you want to think of it that way. So given that little distinction, table two of our book in the case for IBC on page 88 we just grabbed the latest data for that. You know, what's the distribution of U.S. life insurer assets in the general account? And this was year end 2015. So they had uh, 8.7% in U.S. government securities, 1.9% in foreign government securities, 48.4% in corporate bonds, 10.3% in mortgages. You know, that was sp- spread across farm, residential, and commercial, but it was mostly commercial. Uh, they had 3.2% in policy loans, which from the life insurance point of view is the safest type of investment possible. And they had about 2.6% in short-term investments in cash and cash equivalents. So the way we summarized it in the book was to say about 63% of the general account assets we would classify as being very liquid and possessing only moderate to low risk in the event of another financial crisis. Okay. So Again, the point being, it's pretty conservative. So, so yes, if there's a Mad Max environment, everything collapses. Then even the bonds issued by you know very stable corporations and stuff are going to go down. But again, the point being, the life insurance company, in terms of its general account assets, is in largely what we would call fixed income securities. And and so you know, just think about it. If if a company, a major Fortune 500 company, is in trouble its stock price is going to fall first before the bond prices, right? Because the, the stock is the residual claimant that the company first, you know, has to pay off the bondholders. And so, you know, if the company gets into trouble, the thing that first gets hit is it can't make dividend payments and, and so on. All right. So again, it's, it's a, it's a relative claim, but as Carlos is saying too, it's, this isn't just theory. This historically, it was true that for example, during the great depression, thousands of commercial banks failed people turn to their life insurance companies that that the sector as a whole stood up much better in that worst economic environment in the nation's history compared to the commercial bank sector. And, you know, obviously wall street got crushed too. That's the famous 1929 stock market crash that some people look as the, as the trigger that set everything in motion. So that's, that's one way of, of looking at it, you know, just to say, okay, that these things are relatively secure um, I might point out, I might mm-hmm. point out on, on what you're saying there as well, Bob, is that some of those numbers you're quoting, and for anybody that's wanting to research this, um, you're taking the whole life insurance uh, sector, you know, in the aggregate. So you're, 
uh, and these are very stable numbers that you're pointing out. And so this applies to both uh, stock life insurance companies as well as mutuals. We wouldn't want our listeners to get confused because we're always obviously telling uh, folks that if they're going to do IBC, they should, you know, obviously do it with a mutual company versus a stock company. Uh, but the numbers you're pointing out uh, is attributable to the entire life insurance industry, both stock and mutual companies. Uh, a great indicator that uh, the life insurance sector just as a whole is very conservatively, conservatively uh, positioned, uh, especially in the general account. In the special account that you were referring to, that makes up a very small percentage of the entire um, you know, balance sheet of these life insurance companies. Uh, so, again, uh, uh, when you're examining this particular institution, you see that, oh, wow, there's, this thing is very conservative, conservatively uh I don't have trouble with that word, but it's it's very sound financially. Uh, plenty of reserves, uh, like you said, uh, primarily investment-grade uh, corporate bonds and uh, U.S. Treasuries and, and so cash. Uh, so, again, very soundly uh, set up as an institution. Yeah, and let me mention there's, there's a related objection that's you know, yeah, it's it's a good thing to ask, but then when you think it through, you just to make sure, you know, this by answering the question, I'll I think I'll help clarify exactly what's going on so people don't get confused. A lot of times I'll have people come up and they'll say, especially after they've seen Carlos give his presentation. So this material is in chapter one of the book of the case for IBC. But Carlos has a thing where he goes through and he points out like you know, referring to the Dodd Frank Act and this issue of bail-ins where if the commercial banks get in trouble again. They're not going to get taxpayer funding. They're instead, it's going to be the uh, you know the depositors. Basically, they're going to take a haircut and eat it. And it's so people will say something along the lines of, "Well, gee, you know, you guys are warning me that maybe my money's not really as safe in the bank as I thought. That you know, FDIC is woefully underfunded in case there's a major crisis. You know, they've they've got just a pittance to be able to back up all the outstanding uh, demand deposits that are FDIC insured." And so you guys are telling me basically take all my excess money that you know that I don't really need from it on a day to day basis out of the commercial banks and go ahead and put them put it in this these dividend paying whole life policies that are designed the way that Nelson Nash would like. But don't the insurance companies use banks? You know, so so you know if, if the banks all shut down, you know, isn't the life insurance company going to lose all its money too? And, and so it's it's a good question, but. I think we we partially just answered it, so it's not correct. The the a major life insurance company, it has only a small portion of its total assets, literally as cash on deposit with a commercial bank, right? Just like you know, a normal business is not going to have a lot of money literally in its checking account just sitting there. It's probably got it quote out working and doing something for it. So likewise with the life insurance company, at any given moment most of their assets are not literally checking account deposits with commercial banks. And then, you know, so, so the, if there's a, a banking holiday, if you will, and a lot of banks have to shut down temporarily because there's liquidity issues and blah, blah, blah. And the government declares something. It's not like the life insurance company all of a sudden 
would have a bunch of its assets frozen. That That's not correct. A related question, which I might as well go ahead and answer. I don't know. We may have covered this last episode. I can't remember, but just in case we didn't, because uh, I, I, like, I like it. I think it's a, it's a fun little thing to think through. One time somebody said to me, wait a minute, you're telling me to go ahead and use these well-funded dividend-paying whole life policies as a cash flow management system. And you're saying, because if you need cash, you just request a policy loan. And then you're, you're talking about, you know, the commercial banks could be in trouble. Okay, smart guy, Murphy, if the commercial banks are shut down and I want to take out a policy loan, how's the life insurance company going to actually give me the policy loan if the banks are, are closed? Okay, great question. But again, think it through. Let's be, let's be realistic here. Suppose you thought you were being real conservative and you had $50,000 in a commercial bank right now. That you said, no, I, I just, you know, I'm really worried about the future. I want to stay liquid, keep my powder dry. So I've got my money in a commercial bank. I got 50 grand in there right now. And then a bunch of banks get into trouble. And let's say half the bank shut down. There's a 50-50 chance that your bank's included. And then boom, you don't have access to your money until a bank reopens. In contrast, if you had, you know, I'm just, I'm just making numbers up here. Obviously, let's say you only kept 5,000 in your checking account balance and you had the other 45 as cash value in a whole life policy. And then, you know, the, the banks, there's a problem. The banks, half of them get shut down temporarily as a bank holiday. And you want a policy loan. Worst case scenario, you would open up a checking account in the other half of the banks that are still viable. And the life insurance company would mail you the check. And then you would go deposit it in the new bank account that you just opened. Right. So, the only way the life insurance company is not going to be able to give you money is if literally every single commercial bank is closed. So yeah, that could happen. But more realistically, if there's a banking crisis, it's only going to be that some of the banks are going to close. So again, that's that's the rationale for saying, you know, if you're worried about the commercial banking sector, it's more prudent to um, you know keep your liquid funds in the form of cash surrender value with a dividend-paying whole life policy. Because again, it's just it's in a different spot. It's not that the life insurance company is just keeping your funds in a commercial bank with your name on on the account. That's not what's happening. So just to to clarify there. So I hope that both reassures people who had that specific concern, but also just kind of make sure everyone gets this is what's happening. And when there's a policy loan, it's the life insurance company. You know can as long as the, the policy loan requests are not too large, it just flows that out of its you know incoming premium payments and what, instead of taking the incoming premium payments and going and buying more safe corporate bonds, they divert some of that incoming flow to making policy loans to the policyholders. Yeah, that's a so very, that, that, so that's where it comes from. That, that's a very good point that you're making there, uh, Bob, because uh, sometimes we, we do have to kind of keep this in perspective. Now, during the 2008 financial crisis, we actually had a situation where we had a lot of banks that closed down. I mean, there was there was a lot of banks that got into trouble, and a lot of them did close down. Um, we didn't ever hear of them. You know, they got shut down, and, and that was the end of that. But uh, there was a lot of banks that did closed during the 2008 financial crisis. However, my bank didn't close and there were many banks that were still open. So you're, you're, you're exactly right. It's not as though every single bank in the whole country is going to shut down. Uh, <clears throat> so 
keeping things in perspective, we could have some major calamities, some real severe market crashes that would cause people to panic and there'd be bank runs and banks close, but not necessarily every single bank close. And so, you know, 2008 was a good example of that sort of thing. However, we could have you know, much more severe type of problems, which I guess you'll probably be addressing that next, Bob, but, you know, making sure we understand the differences in in the types of calamities that we're talking about when it comes to being able to uh, cash your your policy loan that you get from the insurance company. Yeah. Um, Why don't we, the, the next one that's kind of related is people will say something like, okay, I'm worried about interest rates rising pretty rapidly. And so if that happens, you know, why, why would I, you, you just told me, you know, you're trying to calm my nerves here. You're just saying how heavily invested the life insurance companies are in fixed income securities. And so aren't they going to get crushed if interest rates spike? And, and so, you know, what, what's, what's the story there? Well, the, again, let's think this through. This is, I like this question partly just because the economics of it. It is true that if you were just buying into an ETF of a bond fund or, you know, just as part of a, your 401k or whatever, you just wanted a mutual fund environment, you wanted something that was all fixed income because you were afraid. Yeah, it is true. Other things equal, interest rates all shoot up, then the market value of a bunch of bonds that are already issued is going to go down. That's true. But for the life insurance company, remember, it's they're not a bond fund. It's not like a giant mutual fund. It's a life insurance company. So they have assets and liabilities. And what are the liabilities for a life insurance company? It's the the outstanding you know, death benefit claims. When somebody dies, they have to pay the named beneficiaries what the death benefit was. So if the life insurance company is running its ship properly, they want to do maturity matching, that they want to try to make it so that you know, on the, the liability side, they have the actuaries look at the outstanding policies that are still in force and they try to estimate and say, okay, you know, going forward, we expect statistically this many death benefit claims in each year, you know, come up with dollar figures of that. And then, so we want to have on the asset side bonds that correspond to the, you know, that, that maturity uh, profile so that we have the money coming in appropriately. So th- think of it this way, if they did it absolutely perfectly, if the if their actuaries were omniscient and they knew exactly every quarter going forward for the next 50 years exactly how many dollars they needed to be able to pay off death benefit claims, then they could perfectly tailor their assets to have you know very safe bonds that would you know come to you know mature and bring in exactly that many dollars in each quarter. So they would be perfectly matched. So there'd be no problem. They would know that you know they would have the money coming in the door just as they needed to pay it to somebody for a death benefit claim. And in that environment, it wouldn't matter what interest rate rates were. They would always have the money coming in just when they needed to pay off the death benefit claim. And so if you're trying to reconcile that with your intuition, that, well, wait a minute, but if interest rates go up, their assets get crushed, right? But if interest rates go up, then the present value of their looming liabilities also goes way down. Right, so it it cancels out perfectly, so it doesn't affect the shareholder equity. Right, if the assets go down by ten percent, the liabilities go down by a comparable amount, and so the equity doesn't get doesn't get hit. So that that's the you know the accounting of it to, to try to make make you see how 
the life insurance company in general is not going to be crushed by um, moves in interest rates so long as they have done a, a good job matching the maturities of their assets and liabilities. Because again, they are not a giant mutual fund that just invests in bonds. It's a life insurance company. The, the reason they're investing in those things is to try to tailor it to what their liabilities are. So that's so that's one you know thing that why a life insurance company is not as vulnerable to rising interest rates as like just a straight up mutual fund that invests in bonds would be in terms of the market value. Uh, do you want to say anything on that, Carlos? Well, no that that was very well said. I mean, the matching aspect of it is really what's key in trying to get everybody to focus on. They're matching uh, these assets against those liabilities, and I've looked at. Uh, reports uh, that show that the life insurance companies you know have still have a lot of bonds out there long-term bonds that are matched up against long-term liabilities that are still paying a really healthy interest rate uh now obviously we've been in a low interest rate environment here the last close to the last decade and it has put pressure on those managing bonds uh, in, within the life insurance company to have to, you know, do some jockeying around to get more yield. Uh, but they've been able to do it. But look what's happening right now, Bob. The interest rates are rising right now. <laughs> so, uh, so no, uh, the life insurance company uh, is set up so well in matching those assets, primarily fixed, fixed income assets, against those liabilities. And, and uh, if they ever need to grant somebody a policy loan, they'll just divert the premium payments that are coming in to provide those policy loans, uh, not necessarily having to sell assets in order to do it. But if they had to, they could. Right. And, and of course, folks, you know, we're, Carlson and I are not sitting here giving our blanket endorsement for every single life insurance company in the United States. You know, we're, what we're doing here is just trying to give you a general framework to see why you know, it's not obvious just at step one to say, well, wait a minute, if I think interest rates are rising, then clearly a life insurance company is a stupid thing to put my money in, right? That's, we're just trying to explain to you why that is an inadequate um, analysis. Obviously, you know, especially if you're talking about big dollars flowing and you want to go ahead and do your due diligence and research particular companies, we more power to you. But we're just trying to explain, you know, this this is the way to think about it correctly in terms of the economics. Um I suppose related to this, sometimes people will say, well, wait a minute, guys, you know, why do I have to go through this vehicle of a life insurance policy? You're telling me, given the situation right now, the life insurance companies have a pretty safe portfolio. Why don't I just go Google and see what, you know, my favorite life insurance company is investing in itself? Look at what its assets are. And I would just do that on my own. You know, it would obviously be scaled down, but why can't I just mimic what they do? And then I can avoid the middleman. So again, a, re- a reasonable question, but so two things. One, related to what we just went through, technically, if you did that, all you're doing then is opening up a bond fund, as it were, with your household or your small business. And so there, you, you know, you are, if interest rates go up, then you are taking the hit. Whereas if you have a life insurance policy, really what you're getting there is a promise of a future death benefit. And of course, the you know the guaranteed cash surrender values along the way in exchange for your promised stream of future premium payments. So the moment you take out a policy, you know, if all of a sudden interest rates rise or the dollar takes a hit, you know, your your assets and liabilities kind of 
offset each other, as it were. So, so for example, if the dollar falls in half in terms of its purchasing power and you just open up a life insurance policy, yes, that looming death benefit now is only half as valuable as you thought, but by the same token, the premium payments you're on the hook for are now only half as painful. Okay, so there's there's that element, whereas if all you were doing was investing in the same assets that are on in the portfolio of the life insurance company, you wouldn't have that offsetting feature. So, th- so there's that element. Just, just make sure you, you realize that, that that complicates the analysis. Um, and then, but beyond that, because remember the way IBC works, the, the, the way that this becomes a cash flow management system, it's not that you're building up this asset. And then when you need money, when your daughter's going to get married, you sell off some of those bonds. That's not what's happening. The way IBC works in the typical case is you're not partially surrendering your death benefit coverage. Instead, you're saying to the life insurance company, I want to borrow money, give me a policy loan, and my cash surrender value is serving as the collateral. And that's what's happening. And I think in previous podcasts, we've talked about uh, you know, why that's easier to do and why it just makes a lot more sense than trying to like go to a commercial bank and borrow money against your house, the equity in your house and, and get, you know, pay for your car, for your daughter's wedding that way. So you have this built in mechanism when you go via a dividend paying whole life policy that when you need cash, you can quite easily borrow against that asset. And there's really nothing else like that in the current financial landscape. And so again, that that's another reason. So even if you were saying, no, no, I'm going to, instead of paying premiums to the life insurance company, I'm going to take that money each month and instead just buy fixed income securities in the same proportion that the, that, you know, that particular life insurance company buys on its side. Okay. That's great. And then what happens when you need $40,000, you would have to either borrow, you know, go to a commercial bank and borrow against those bonds, or you'd have to sell some of them off. To, to raise the 40 year and neither of those options is as attractive as you being able to go to a life insurance company. And, and if you had 40,000 in cash surrender value to say, let me take out a policy loan with that as a collateral. So that's again, another reason to say when you really get specific about this, that in practice, no, you cannot mimic with other strategies, what you're able to do following Nelson Nash's advice that he lays out in becoming your own banker. Yeah, that's beautifully said, Bob. <laughs> and it makes me just, uh, again, say this is why IBC is such, it's the ideal alternate bank. Okay, well, well, thanks, Carl. Glad you like that. Uh, the last thing, why don't we, I mean, I, I alluded to it a little bit here, but a classic one we get is, especially from our Austrian friends, they will say, and, and this came up at the, in the Nashville uh, event. Oh, really? people, well, yeah, yeah. The, the, I mean, remember the, person asking about um, if the dollar is going to crash, you know, why, why would I want any kind of cash related asset? Oh yeah, that's right. I do right. remember it. So, so again, and, and you know, Carlos and I are very concerned about the long-term strength of the, of the U S dollar for various, you know, in addition to the QE and all that stuff, there's plenty of evidence. And we've been detailing this in the Lara Murphy report. If you're not a subscriber, you should be about these things about, you know, China's pulling back on its uh, holdings of treasuries. We're going to talk about um, (laughs) recent news in the the next coming LMR. We're going to mention that the country of Turkey has requested to get all of its gold that's being held by the, you know, in the U.S. banking system and saying, actually, yeah, why don't you go ahead and give us that gold? So there's lots of little signs here and there about how 
the U.S. dollar is, is losing its prestige. And so somebody could quite understandably say, what are you talking about? Like, uh, why would I want to have any kind of asset that was dollar denominated? You know, in other words, for people who don't know what that term means, like a stock, for example, you have you own U.S. stock, you own what you actually own. The denomination of your property is how many shares of stock do you have? So, yes, at any moment you can go look up what's the dollar price of that. And you can say, how much is my stock worth? But in terms of what you're legally entitled to, what you what you own is shares of stock. And so if the dollar crashes, then you would expect at least you know the dollar price of your stocks, your shares of stock would go up. In contrast, a bond is dollar denominated. So what the bond promises is to say like the, the owner of this thing or the bearer of this is entitled to whatever, $10,000 on this particular date. And so if the dollar crashes, if it's just a normal bond, you're still just getting the $10,000. That's what it's promising you. So it's denominated in dollars. So the argument goes, why would I want dollar denominated assets if I think the dollar is going to crash? And and that and a life insurance policy is dollar denominated, right? That you look, what the contract is giving you is guaranteed cash surrender values expressed in dollar terms over time. And then of course the death benefit is denominated in dollars. So th- that's, you know, that that's understandable. And that's a fine um, concern. And so just a couple of things that Carlos and I say in the response to this. So number one, make sure you realize if, if we're just talking about a decline in the dollar's purchasing power, like we're not linking it to like, you know a civil war or something. We're just saying, suppose because of all the QE and whatever, over time we have 9 10% inflation for several years in a row, isn't that going to be, by which I mean rising consumer prices, you know, isn't that going to really eat into the benefits of me doing this strategy you guys talk about. Yes, it will on its face, but keep in mind, it's not that the life insurance companies are going to go under. In fact, it'll be easier for them to fulfill their promises if the dollar becomes weaker, because now what they're on the hook for is weaker, right? There's also the element of, remember we said, to the extent that you still have a bunch of future premium payments you're on the hook for, well, then that correspondingly gets easier for you to achieve as well. So what I'm getting at is if you're planning on saying, ah, if I do this strategy, I'll have whatever, $300,000 sitting there in my cash surrender value by the time I uh, you know, want to start touring the world after you know leaving my job, that's fine. It's just that you know, you'll have that 300000 probably, but it's just that it won't be is valuable to you in that new environment where prices are a lot higher than you thought they would be. So just keep that in mind. Um, another element to this is even if the dollar does crash, Americans will probably still be using dollars. Okay. I mean, it would have to take a really huge crash in order for the dollar just to disappear and for some new currency to be interesting. I'm not saying that won't happen, but I'm just saying in terms of the scenarios where we have in our consideration here, I mean, you just look at other countries, they endure pretty severe price inflation before they literally abandon their currency. So I'm saying even as things got hairy, even if we did have unprecedented price inflation for the U.S. experience, it would probably still be the case for a period at least that you know you to pay your electric bill to go to the grocery store and get groceries to pay your landlord to make your car payment you would still need dollars and so again you would still need some kind of infrastructure some way of flowing dollars through your household or your business and so IBC would still be the best way to do that relative to the alternatives even if the dollar itself you know loses a lot of its purchasing power 
Yeah, that's again, uh, very well said. And what you're doing here is trying to divide up, you know, how bad things can get versus, you know, what we could, you know, need to reasonably see would happen. Because uh, it reminds me of the some of the issues in the LMR where we talked about how to weather the coming financial storms. You know, we actually talked Along these lines as well, Bob, where we're trying to separate some of these major calamities that can happen. So I like what you're pointing out right here is that even if we had, you know, price inflation uh, to the extreme that you're talking about and that it would really do damage to the dollar, we'd still be using dollars in the United States. Yeah. And, and you've flowed right into the last thing I want to say is, is remember, folks, it's you know, Nelson Nash is not telling you, hey, I've looked at all the various asset classes. There's real estate, there's bonds, there's gold, there's silver, uh, you know, there's equities. And I think after my survey that what you should invest in is life insurance. No, that's not what he's saying at all. He is saying that you want to, quote, become your own banker. He wants this dividend paying life insurance policy or multiple policies, depending on your scenario, to be serving as like the headquarters or the warehouse of your money. So then when you see an attractive investment opportunity, you have the the ability to seize it. Whereas if you had been doing what the experts say and plopping all your excess funds into a tax qualified 401k, for example, and you're 48 and you see this great real estate opportunity, oh, you don't have any money. You can't get to it because your money's locked up in this retirement plan. The government has all these rules about how when you can touch it. Whereas if you had been doing Nelson's strategy, you just go ahead and borrow against this nice fat cash surrender value you got sitting there. Okay, so the, so that's the the general framework that Nelson's envisioning. So it's not tying your hands. On the contrary, it's freeing you up to seize good investment opportunities. So in this context, if you agree with a lot of Austrians and with Carlson and me that what the Fed has done since 2008 is very uh, threatening to the long-term health of the U.S. dollar, well, then what's going to look like a, quote, good investment opportunity to you is probably to get exposure to some precious metals and, you know, maybe foreign real estate or foreign, whatever you want to do based on your own particular judgment call. And IBC is not stopping you from doing that. On the contrary, it's it's giving you the option of doing that. And so, as Carl said, if you, I encourage you go to, if you haven't seen it already, our, our video presentation on what we call the, how to weather the coming financial storms. It's a, LaraMurphy.com, just you'll you'll see it right on the main page there. I'll also put a link in the show notes page. And we we go through a whole presentation and give you a three-pronged strategy of what we think people should do just to play defense and to make sure you don't get really crushed if these coming storms occur the way we think they will. So I and I want to be clear here that on that stuff, that's Carlos and me. I don't I don't want to, you know, attach Nelson's name to that. I I don't you know know that whether he endorses everything we say in that in that video. So I just want to do be clear. The case for IBC, you know, Nelson's on board with everything we have here, whereas this other, how to weather the coming financial storms, that's what Carlson and I are saying to people just to isolate, you know, <laughs> who's giving what endorsement to what. So, but the point is, if you're the kind of person that you think, no, I really want to stock up on gold and silver, I don't know why I'd be fooling around with this life insurance stuff. I'm, I'm saying just, just make sure you at least understand the claim here. We're not telling you, you got, it's an either or. We're saying, you're allowed to go ahead and run your funds and build up this cash surrender value in one of these policies. And if you want to take out a policy loan to go buy a bunch of gold coins, you can still do that. There's nothing stopping you from doing that. 
Any thoughts on that, Carlos, for our listeners who are concerned about the future? Well, no, I think all that was very well said again, Bob. Um, uh, this this particular episode, uh, I think, has done a pretty good job, I hope, in trying to break up some of the concerns that are out there and separate them properly. I think that's the the key thing that we're trying to do here. There's more information, obviously, in the book itself. I do encourage people to to buy a copy of it, and and it's an e- it's, it's a fast read. It's, it's not very lengthy, but you get a lot of great information on trying to keep all this, you know, straight. Yeah, and I we're, we are getting good feedback from people. So many of you who are probably listening right now, writing in, saying, "Yeah, I got your book. It's great stuff." And they have some questions, and we we love that. So by all means, keep the questions coming. If you haven't yet gotten the copy, it is at thecaseforibc.com. And again, if you're hearing this before May 19th, 2018, and you're in the Chicago area, we encourage you come out and you'll get several hour presentation on all this material so you can really dive deep into it and have your questions answered. And the information for that seminar is at ibcseminar.com. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next time. You've just finished another episode of The Laura Murphy Show. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues to do your part in building the 10%. The Laura Murphy Show is provided with the understanding that the staff and contributors of lauramurphy.com are not here and engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult your own professional tax, legal, or financial advisor. Thank you.